Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. World podcast uh, from the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Gordon, and today I'm interviewing Jamie Allenson about The Age of Counter-Revolution, released in May of this year from Cambridge University Press. The last two decades have witnessed an unprecedented amount of protests for far-reaching social change around the world, from the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street to the protests against police violence following the murder of George Floyd in 2020. Yet for the most part, these uprisings have failed to produce revolutionary social and political changes, achieving at most fig leaf reforms or reconfigurations of political institutions that leave the interests of the powerful untouched. My guest today, Jamie Allenson, argues that understanding this gap between revolutionary demands and the persistence of the social status quo requires an analysis of counter-revolutionary political strategies by incumbent elites and their international patrons. Focusing on the countries of the Arab Spring, the age of counter-revolution examines how authoritarian elites have used performative violence to smash the optimism and imagination of revolutionary movements, drawn from the legacies of previous revolutions from above to reconstruct social bases of support and gain the support of international allies who stood to lose materially and symbolically by the emergence of new revolutionary states. Jamie Allenson is a senior lecturer of international relations at the University of Edinburgh. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Uh, So, Jamie, your first book, The Struggle for the State in Jordan, uh, from 2015, examined the uneven and combined development of the modern state system in the Middle East. In addition, uh, you uh, are a part of the Salvage Collective, which recently published The Tragedy of the Worker Toward the Proletarian from Verso uh, Press in 2021. Um, Why did you decide to study counter-revolution, and how does this book fit in with your previous work? Yeah, it kind of bridges those things in a way um, in that I am a scholar of the politics of the Middle East and especially of of the Arab world. And that's where I started off doing my PhD, which became my first book, which focused on the post-colonial history of Jordan and particularly on a, a, criti- a critique of ways of seeing politics and the state in the Middle East that see um, these places as kind of waiting to be modern so that someday something's going to happen that's going to cause deficient or insufficiently modern kind of insufficiently capitalist or insufficiently sovereign states to become so and that all of the kind of crises um, and various forms of conflict that we see in the region derive from this gap. And what I was trying to argue in my first book or to investigate was actually how one particular state, Jordan, was brought into a system of global capitalist 
relations in a way that was, as, as you said, start uneven and combined. So combining previous forms of social relations with those of global capitalism, and that actually the way that state has acted in the sovereign state system depends upon that combination. So I already had that background, but as a member of, of Salvage, you know, one of our main concerns is the history of defeat and especially how to be uh, continuously look for the case for social transformation and the means for it in a world in which we've experienced continuous cycles of defeat and the Arab uprisings, the Arab Spring, as people often refer to them, the Arab revolutions, as I call them, are an example of that very great possibility and kind of very great defeat, at least um, in the short term kind of time scale. So I was looking at um, these cases from that point of view, as well as the fact that I actually had a lot of comrades and friends who were involved in the uprisings and I was in Egypt um, several times. I was also working in Jordan uh, in the early days of kind of 2011, um, 12, 13. And I had a, lot of, had a lot of contact and kind of comrades and friends from Syria. So people who were actually in, involved and affected by the course of these events. Um, yeah, and, and for um, a lot of uh, people who study particular parts of the world, uh, um, academic interests and personal interests have a way of uh, colliding during uh, major um, upheavals, uh, uh, like what the Arab world has witnessed in the last um uh, over a decade now since the uh, Arab uprisings began. Um, you note in the introduction of the book that the 2010s witnessed a wave of protests greater than any since that sparked by the Russian Revolution of 1917, yet revolution in the sense of complete social transformation uh, has almost vanished as a political horizon. And you alluded uh, uh uh, before about uh, the long history of, of defeats uh, as a, the name of the salvage book, the tragedy of the worker kind of uh, lets on um, what is counter revolution and how does it help us explain this puzzle of contention and non-transformation? Mm. At its most simple, I suppose counter revolution means the reversal of a revolution, but then that leads us up to another uh, bigger question of what do we mean by revolution and therefore what does it mean for <clears throat> a revolution to be reversed there are a couple of different ways we can talk about that and I think the most um, embedded one in the kind of social science literature um, which anyone who's studying sociology or political science or postgrads in it will probably come across is Theda Scotchpole's definition from her famous um, book, States and Social Revolutions, which is based upon the idea that uh, a, a social revolution in particular, so that's important, defining as a social revolution, is a complete transformation of a society's um, structures of production, reproduction, and governance, and that this happens 
either as a result of, or at least current currently with, some kind of form of mass class-based uprising from below. And that's a pretty concise, I think, uh, definition. It's not something we should throw away easily, and it covers a, a, an intuitive understanding of what a revolution means. In that understanding, of course, then, the only place for counter-revolution would be something like perhaps uh, Napoleon Bonaparte in France, so kind of coming to power, reversing the social transformations being wrought by the French Revolution, or at least their political ones, this kind of concept of counter-revolution. Fundamentally, it's a notion based upon the idea of revolution's closed effect. So a big change that has occurred, and then a counter-revolution means the reversal of that big change. I think that's not an invalid way of talking about revolution, but it misses a lot. And one of the things it misses is actually historical openness, historical possibility. Because, of course, if we only think about revolutions as the successful revolutions, the ones that actually work or produce these big Uh, social transformations, then we don't really have any comparator cases or any ways of saying why they are prevented from doing so, or that there's some point at which a revolution starts to happen and is turned back, or um, a counter-revolution, in other words, wins. So that's why I, in the book, um, kind of use this concept of a revolutionary situation. So a moment when the um, a mass movement has kind of caused a moment of dual sovereignty in a state where there are different contenders for power. Um, that is a revolutionary situation, which has been written about, I think, a lot. I mean, from Lenin and Trotsky down to uh, Charles Tilley, uh, Mona Al-Gabashi in the most recent case, writing about Egypt. But there's a good, I think, quote from um, the Syrian economist who was imprisoned in 2011 and then died in prison, Omar Aziz, um, who describes revolution as rupture in time and space, where humans live between two periods, the period of power and the period of revolution. A revolution's victory, however, is ultimately achieving the independence of its time in order to move into a new era. So to try and say that a revolution is a superposition of all the possibilities of a different kind of society and politics. A counter-revolution... That's a really really compelling quote. I just uh, wanted to to say that uh, uh, that way of thinking of um, a revolution as a a break in... in, time and space and a radical radical opening of of possibilities um uh yeah that's a really compelling way of thinking about revolutions as open-ended events rather than outcomes that you're just kind of anal- reading history backwards to analyze the the causes of yeah exactly exactly and that's really the approach i try to take in the book so the counter-revolution is the closure of that situation the ending of that period on terms favourable to, but we'll go on and speak about, I'm sure, uh, not exactly the same as the kind of old 
regime, or certainly the old um, form of social relations. Now, in relation to your second part of your question, it's common um, in sociology or in, in political science to divide up revolutionary phenomena. And on the one hand, to say you can have kind of social revolutions, which are the big total transformations of society. So where we think about the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, probably the most transformative of all, uh, the Chinese Revolution, that bring about new orders, new forms of belief, new types of life, a new form of state quite often, not just new personnel in the state as opposed to social revolutions, which, um, oh, sorry, excuse me, political revolutions, which change the administrative personnel, or perhaps something about the way a state functions, but they're not, um, for example, whether it is authoritarian or democratic, but they're not changing the underlying form of society. We see a lot, sorry, carry on. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say right um, as a uh, somebody who is uh, really entangled in the democratization studies, uh, industrial complex, and comparative politics in the U.S., um, I I lament uh, sometimes this di uh, division or cutting off of um, or or bifurcating the analysis of of. Uh, political revolution, as you call it, transitions to democracy, uh, democratic consolidation from these broader social questions and, and treating them as uh, distinct outcomes because uh, it can lead to uh, losing sight of the material stakes at play in these political conflicts and and um, uh, lead political scientists to um, maybe overstate the degree of transformation that has occurred when a, a society holds uh, competitive multi-party elections for the first time. Uh, I feel like, um, you know, that's only uh, the... Uh, the edge of the iceberg when it comes to uh, understanding these periods of of transformation and contention, possible transformation and, and contention. Yeah. And as I um, kind of referred to in the beginning and the end of the book, what's often called in political science the third wave or democratization uh, period of the late 20th, early 21st century, is actually the expansion, in most of its cases, of a wave of political revolution. And we have seen, as Mark Beisinger, who's Princeton uh, political scientist and historian, has compiled a database that shows how revolutionary situations, episodes of revolution, mass in kind of uh, protests that bring about political crises and changes government have increased very sharply since um, the late 20th century. But we don't really have, uh, well, there are projects of kind of total social transformation, but they don't tend to be ones that are um, away from capitalism, let's say, or away from the presently existing social structure. And therefore, something's probably, there's a I have an intuition that started off the book. Something is happening there. That it, to explain this gap, 
somebody is doing something that is winning that we're not looking at and that that is counter-revolution right and uh you know sometimes in my darker moments i wonder how complicit political science and democratization studies has been in producing this outcome of uh uh, what William Robinson called back in the 90s, uh, promoting polyarchy, uh, promoting political revolution without, uh, uh, while also uh, actively isolating political revolution from, from social revolution. But and uh, in that sense, political revolutions, story. sorry, mm-hmm. in no, that sense, ahead. political revolutions can be kind of socially counter revolutionary. I mean, you can have a formal democracy, but the purpose of that formal democracy can be, not always, but it could be to forestall um, the kind of social movements that give rise to the crisis to which democratization is the answer. Right. And um, um, we talked a little uh, before we started the interview about uh, Michael Albertus and Victor Minaldo's work on on elite biased democratic transitions. Uh, uh um, in which elites use institutional design during these moments of democratic transition to kind of uh, protect their interests and make sure that um, representatives of popular forces can only do so much uh, uh, to affect uh, these farther reaching political changes. Um, so, uh, so this is what counter-revolution is about. It's about uh, uh, um forestalling uh broader social revolutions uh and and closing the door on possibilities of of uh deeper social transformations in the distribution of property and income and um um the status of particular social groups for example status of various sorts of social hierarchies uh and an important component of your analysis as you alluded to in your last answer uh is your argument that counter revolutions um do not merely turn back the clock in so far as they rarely are able to um just reinstitute the same institutions and social uh, relations that existed before the onset of the revolutionary situation. Instead, counter-revolutions produce new configurations of ideas, interests, and institutions that structure the political and social order going forward. Um, And so in that case, uh, what do counter-revolutionaries aim to restore? And what do counter-revolutionary actors need to do in order to be successful? The fundamental thing that counter-revolutionaries are trying to do is restore an order uh, that's broken. But they want to restore it usually uh, in a way that preserves, broadly or narrowly defined, the interests of the ruling class of that order. There are some... You can get a narrower or a kind of smaller version of that, or let's say a tighter core kind of version of that. If you look at a place like Syria or Bahrain, where the technically the people who are in power are those who are in power in 2011, but even then, through the maintenance of that power, it's completely changed the um, the landscape in those two countries, um, particularly in Syria you get a kind of perhaps broader, little bit broader version of it in a place like Egypt, where it's less important that the particular family or, you know, 
individual personnel associated with the dictator Mubarak um, remain in power, but rather that the broader interests of kind of security elites in the army and their economic interests and the businessmen with whom they are allied, that they maintain, uh, if not total control, then definitely the continued their continued position. But that's not um, feasible after you've had this revolutionary break without building, and here I'm getting to the second part of your question and how it leads to a kind of changed situation, because counter-revolution is also a a revolutionary outcome. You know, counter-revolutions are results of revolutions, and they're very often quite big changes. Um, So, as in any action in politics, you have to make a subject. You have to have a a kind of uh, wheeled together grouping of people, a coalition who can act. And we know from a great deal of literature on revolutionary uprisings and contentious politics, there's no simple revolutionary subject. It's not that you just go, the peasants are going to, you know, do this. The working class are going to take power. They're always built in the action of the revolution itself. And counter-revolutionaries have to do and do do something similar. Now, how they do that varies. And it can have variations that I talk about in the book, which give a different cast to the kind of outcomes. But particularly, you have to unite what Arno Mayer well, in his book, uh, The Furies, he calls uh, the anti-revolution, so the kind of popular reaction against revolution, and the counter-revolution, so the, the old order, the old kind of ruling class, which I refer to more as kind of the counter-revolution from above and the counter-revolution from below. And some kind of means has to be available to make that unity happen. I mean, I particularly talk about, in the case of, of Egypt, the inheritance of previous Nasserist models of developmental nationalism that the the military was able to use and were genuinely popular. I mean, this is another point I want to make about um, counter-revolution, that it's not just the work of a a minority, that it has an appeal. Another um, way in which uh, counter-revolutionaries can perhaps compensate for uh, a, a, a kind of narrower appeal is to look to outside allies, so to find kind of counter-revolutionaries from without. But all of these options inevitably recast the the politics of the state in which they're happening and the way that that state relates to other states, because typically you have to forge this kind of counter-revolutionary coalition in a way that excludes the revolutionaries or the people who were amongst whom the revolutionaries were found. So that usually you end up with more exclusionary, kind of radicalized versions of kind of authoritarian regimes, um, which I think is what we do now see. Um, right. And, and uh, so uh, your answer kind of alludes to uh, the counter revolution from above, the counter revolution from below, and the efforts that regimes uh, uh, try to use to. Um, uh, Pull together, connect uh, their the um, 
the core act the core actors who have the most to lose from the revolution with some sort of new popular base that they can use to reestablish uh, uh hegemony or legitimacy whatever uh word you want to use to describe it and then um also as we're going to discuss in a little bit um uh the importance of international alliances and international actors uh on both sides of of many revolutionary situations but in these in the cases at hand uh uh certainly international actors have been major counter-revolutionary forces um but first i want to i want to uh, discuss an important theme um, in your theory chapter and running through all of your case studies, uh, which is the performative and affective uh, rather than merely instrumental function of violence. That is to say, um, uh, a lot of the violence of counter-revolutionary regimes uh, go beyond what is necessary simply to disperse demonstrations or demobilize organizations or defeat poorly armed adversaries. Um, um, we've seen just such brutality from these counter-revolutionary regimes and the uh, use of torture and rape and um, uh, sexual assault. Um, uh, what is the political function of, of these kinds of performative uh, 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 style, uh styles of violence that we see in, in counter-revolutionary situations. Mm, I mean, in some ways, that's kind of the reverse of, uh, I think, I'm not sure if I remember this quotation right, but Franz Fanon talking about kind of anti-colonial revolutionary violence. He says, when the native uh, kills the colonist, he kills two men, the man who had to be obeyed and the man who obeyed. So that there's a sense of liberation about um, being equal. Now, revolutionary situations, which as I go on, I talk about a bit in the book, um, these were not actually non-violent revolutionary situations at all in any of the cases. But what they all had in common was the sense of a greater selfhood, kind of sense of collective liber- liberation in which the individual was in a really more meaningful sense than many of us can grasp in our day-to-day lives, free, and that the world was before them, um, that this suffocating order under which they had lived was collapsing, and that something new could be made. That doesn't go away easily, This because it's not, um, you know, in political science, as you know, people, scholars, often, not exclusively, but often concentrate on the things that we can kind of count um, or, or document or see as a, an institutionally visible process, something that produces a parliament, a law, um, a budget. But that's actually not where the kind of revolutionary subject is happening. It's happening in the way that people change themselves becoming a a different type of self and that is also therefore not something that just disappears um, with a triumph an institutional triumph it has to be it has to be kind of destroyed through exemplary violence so not just because um, you have to remove the kind of enemy from the field but because you have to make people shrink into themselves again to try and make them afraid again in a way that also will spread amongst 
the populace. So it's actually, um, it, these are not secret acts of violence. They might be done as if they're supposed to be secret, but the point of them is to have this kind of um, exemplary role, as well as reflecting the fact that there is, I talk about this a little bit in the theory chapter relating to uh, Sebastian Hafner's writing on the on the German Revolution. The counter-revolutionary operatives are, are kind of often driven into a sort of frenzy by the absence of order. Uh, because it's frightening, as well as being liberating for some people, it's frightening for others. And so that can lead to this uh, kind of superregoratory violence by which the revolutionary actors or the kind of revolutionary subject is kind of either physically or politically cleansed, removed from um, the national scene. Uh, and as you were as you were talking about um, uh, uh, the public uh, and demonstrative nature of, of counter revolutionary violence, um, I was thinking about uh, here in the U.S. Um, the way that Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who drove from Illinois to Wisconsin to shoot protesters, has been treated as a star figure on the right and. Um, the way you have these paramilitary militias, although they haven't openly used uh, uh, demonstrative violence yet, uh, you get a sense that they're just waiting to be able to do something like that because of this uh, fear that that the possibility of a, of, of a revolutionary subject uh, uh, changing the social order uh, creates here. Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 a little frightening to see. Uh, um, uh, the green shoots of that kind of uh, thing, even if we haven't seen it on the scale that uh, it has been experienced in places like Egypt uh, or Syria uh, in the U.S., um, the impulse is there, uh, basically. And we've seen it in our history in the U.S. with the rise of the KKK uh, after um, uh, post-Civil War Reconstruction uh, could very well be seen as a sort of counter-revolutionary exemplary violence. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm no expert, but I think that that's uh, almost unarguably the case. Um, that I mean, looking you know back to things like the Black Reconstruction and these kind of examples that the the origin of this um, sadistic, excessive form of violence uh, directed against, um, you know, through lynching and these kind of practices uh, against not just particular, but any black person is because of the moment to reverse that, you know, moment of potential power and equality. And this is a common... Uh, it's a common experience, basically. It's, it's something that is is almost, almost universal across counter-revolutions. Right, right. Um, you also, another theme that uh, 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 um, carries throughout your case studies and, and your theory chapter, and, and we've already alluded to it, um, is the role of... of, of uh, international or external actors. Um, 
paraphrasing George Lawson in his recent work on 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 revolutions and the the international aspects of revolutions, you argue that counter revolutions are inner societal all the way down. Um, who are the most important international counter revolutionary actors uh, uh, during the Arab uprisings, and uh, what were some of the tactics that they used? What what did what was at stake for these uh, counter revolutionary actors? What motivated them to get so deeply involved and to spend billions of dollars uh, in some in, in many cases uh, um, in in uh, um, promoting counter revolutionary forces? Um, uh, who were the big international counter-revolutionary actors? So almost any um, state that got involved in the Arab world or had been involved in the Arab world from 2011 onwards has been pretty counter-revolutionary. But I think we can deal with it at the kind of global um, and, and regional levels a bit separately. So globally, of course, the U.S., which um, is the same interest that have tried to be have been maintained in the region since the Second World War, which is to kind of maintain the the flow of energy. Um, not that the U.S. depends upon um, energy resources from the Middle East; it, it doesn't, especially not after kind of shale fracking but to maintain it for the global economy and also therefore to support uh, allies in a way that keeps the credibility of the US including including Israel though Israel was less involved directly in the aftermath of the revolutions than many people expected to be so the linchpin of course of US policy was Saudi Arabia and then the Egyptian uh, regime that fell in 2011. Something interesting happened, though, in that people know this now. It's been much more evident for the past 10 years. A split opened up between Saudi Arabia and the US in that the Saudis, at the regional level, have been the most uh, out... uh, The outriders with the UAE for counter-revolution, so the kind of central counter-revolutionary core. And the reason for that is fairly simple to understand, which is that across the states, that, especially Egypt, but elsewhere, that have been threatened or were threatened by these revolutions, um, very large investments made in real estate and uh, other forms of investments, especially with uh, the Egyptian military and its partners, um, but in other states as well, that would have been threatened. I mean, they're quite direct threats to material interests. Right, and Adam Adam Hania's uh, uh, research on um, um, the interests of these Gulf monarch, uh, monarchies in in the broader Middle East uh, is is. Um, uh, goes really into a lot of detail about the different material interests that these uh, uh, c- uh, countries had at stake in in places like Egypt and and the Levant and um, um, and elsewhere in the region and that was definitely a big reason why they were so took such a hard line in a lot of these cases right yeah 
exactly. I mean, plus also the general principle um, that the inhabitants of a state should not be involved in the running of that state is very dear to the hearts of the leaders of the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and they don't like that to be challenged in any way um, in the region. So, therefore, they formed the the vanguard of counter-revolution, whether directly, for example, in Egypt, kind of funding and promoting the, the coup and the post-coup regime, um, or even in places where they opposed the regime. So in Syria, Saudi Arabia played a big role in fu- funding and promoting certain fact- armed factions, as well as other unarmed factions, but would tend to promote the ones that were least democratic, uh, were likeliest to kind of suppress the wider popular movement, and that serve their interests. So that's one kind of pole, if you like. Uh, then on the other side, you have the a kind of smaller, um, I guess, axis, but definitely present, which was the Iranian regime plus the Assad regime plus Hezbollah. So basically fighting in, in Syria to prevent an overthrow of that um regime, partially for the kind of strategic alliance that the existence of the Syrian regime has also has always offered to Iran and to Hezbollah in confrontation with Israel, but also because, again, um, Iran, remember, had suffered a quite close call in 2009 with a not entirely dissimilar uprising. Um, in the Islamic Republic, which is a different, I mean, it's a different type of political system. Uh, they're not exactly the same. But again, it's not good to have a, an example uh, effect. Then finally, I would say that in the, the region, there was another um, poll or, or kind of axis based around Turkey and Qatar. Originally, Qatar was a bit closer to the kind of Gulf position, but then um, having this long relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which, of course, the AKP, they're not the Muslim Brotherhood, but they derive from that kind of tradition, Islamist, Sunni Islamism, um, promoting the Muslim Brotherhood. And I'd characterize this grouping, which centrally Turkey is kind of central power for it, as in most cases, not all, but in most cases, seeking a, a kind of political revolution that would, as I said, prevent the social revolution. I mean, this is definitely, I think, the focus of Turkey's support, Turkey and Qatar's support of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Um, but these axes have been complicated, and they've often broken down and recomposed in certain situations. So, for example, um, in Yemen, you've had a situation where actually the UAE and Saudi proxies have fought to each other, um, partly because the Saudis were quite happy or not unhappy with Muslim Brotherhood-aligned forces fighting against the um, kind of pro-Houthi forces, but the UAE was very hostile to those groups and funded Yemeni secessionists. So once you get into the the actual dynamics of conflict, um, they become very complicated. Oh, finally, I should, of course, said that Russia 
which had been the main external backer of the Assad regime and provided the air power that's uh, kept it in power, I think saw saw a chance to increase or expand external influence and did so successfully, as well as needing to retain the um, one kind of firm ally uh, in the region, so Syria or, or the Ba'ath regime in Syria, um, with the result that, at least until recently, Russia actually was then a player in other um, scenarios, other other battlefields, for example, Libya. Um, yeah, and and uh, these, um, although you know uh, the Saudi Arabia UAE line has been pretty pretty stable throughout a lot of these cases, we've seen uh, Turkey, particularly in relation to the Syrian uh, uh, conflict, has. Uh, uh, switched its strategy up uh, uh, as as uh, forces has the balance of forces has evolved on the ground, especially with the emergence of a um, uh, uh, Kurdish statelet uh, uh, in Rojava, as we'll discuss later, um, and uh, of course the roots of of the rupture between Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE on the one hand and Qatar on the other hand uh, perhaps lie in in these different uh, sometimes conflicting uh, uh, regional strategies that these uh, states have adopted. Um, so your your four uh, empirical chapters um, uh, uh, pair up uh, cases that have uh, distinct trajectories. Um, you start out with Egypt and Tunisia, uh, countries that um, experienced uh, political revolutions, although uh, in, in, in the main uh, difference you're trying to explain there is why uh, the political revolution was rolled back in Egypt, whereas in Tunisia it, it it has persisted, albeit, you know, somewhat uh, fragilely. But um, uh, and then you uh, uh, turn to Syria and Bahrain, two countries where the core personnel of the authoritarian regimes uh, uh, have managed to survive uh, the revolution relatively intact uh, to a much greater extent than than the other countries uh, that you examine. Um, then you examine two cases where uh, the political order broke down entirely, Libya and Yemen, um, partially because of endogenous causes, but also uh, international forces played a big role in, in creating those outcomes. And then you examine um, two entirely novel political orders uh, um, that operate sort of outside of the uh, the the state system, um, the uh, autonomous administration of Rojava and the caliphate of the Islamic State. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your case selection strategy because this differs uh, from um, certainly in, in comparative politics uh, where um, Mill's methods of, of, of similarity and difference are, are still um, um, pretty hegemonic. Um, you use the strategy of, of um, integrated uh, uh, comparison um, and 
incorporated comparison. I'm sorry. I've <laughs> uh, slipped from the right word, slipped from my head for a moment there, but incorporated comparison. And this has to do with the, not only the role of, of external actors in each of these revolutions, but the way in which um, the revolutions, the, the revolutions and counter-revolutions interacted with each other. Um, uh, I would like you to describe a little bit um, why you decided to use uh, this incorporated comparison strategy and what does it allow you to see that maybe um, the traditional methods of comparison uh, make it difficult to see? Sure. Um, I should say it's not my strategy didn't come up right with the it's, it's uh, philip mcmichael, McMichael, yeah, philip uh, McMichael. Uh, developed the strategy but it's your it's the strategy you employ it's in the one the that study, used, yeah. is what i mean yes yeah, yeah yeah um so i think at just a very basic level an incorporated comparison is a bit closer to what the world is is like um when we're adopting the classic kind of million method where there's some outcome variable that we wish to explain so we look at cases that um you know display the same outcome but uh different starting points or same starting points but different outcome and then we can somehow by doing that kind of cut out the extraneous factors to identify the cause the thing that's the cause. And I'm not sure that's really, I think that's not doing justice to the way the social world works in that we're all in our um, interactions, we're caught both in the kind of flow of history and the reality of geography. So all human interactions, all societies are passive or are composed of uh, events occurring through time and across space and incorporated comparison is incorporated in the sense that it's trying to look at if you like a bit of that kind of flowing river of of time that is relevant to you for some reason some reason that might be actually provided by the world and for me it was i mean these are the the cases that in which uh, revolutionary uprisings occurred so these are the ones I look at. But within that kind of, I called it kind of flowing river of time, but you can think of it as this stretch of events. You could, of course, compare across the same place at different times, which gives you a sense of what happened through history. Or you can look at the same kind of broad stretch of phenomena and look across different sites, which are nonetheless interlinked. And that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm saying these are this is a process that's occurring across the region. And you can't say that, you can't like pick Egypt out and say, well, in Egypt, there are these factors X, Y, and Z. And in Tunisia, there are factors X, Y, and W. Um, because they're so, they're interconnected from the start. So that's what it means to describe incorporate comparison. And that's why I kind of, Essentially, the way I'm, the reason that I put together the different cases, um, that is because they roughly sh share outcomes. Not exactly share outcomes, but we can say that in Tunisia and Egypt, for example, a political revolution of a sort occurred. In 
Bahrain and Syria, the existing regimes were able to hang on. So that these are the things you have to say, how did that happen? Whereas in Libya and Yemen, it's a near total collapse. Um, so there are shared, if you like, well, I think you said trajectories, but there's a kind of broad um, sense of similarity in the outcomes that you can work backwards from. So that's what I try and do. Um, and so your first uh, pairing is about Egypt and Tunisia, and you're interested in um, why Egypt's political revolution was rolled back in, while Tunisia's uh, political revolution has, has persisted. Um, why did uh, uh, Egypt result in a much harder line counter-revolutionary regime, regime and outcome than Tunisia? I mean, I should say events are still ongoing in Tunisia, so right. Um, it's always we... always a challenge with a a study like this because uh, um, uh, you're looking at a moving target, uh, basically. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, but let's go back to uh, the time of 2013, or the time the time that I'm concerned with. Um, the main reasons I think are that. Partly, it's to do with the presence of um, the presence of an organised working class actor in Tunisia in the form of the the UGTT, so kind of much more central position of organised work workers in the revolutionary um, the revolutionary uh, upsurge in Tunisia. You also you don't la- it's not lacking. The Tunisian army is still an important force, but it's not quite the economic and institutional linchpin that existed in Egypt. So, in Tunisia, the UGTT got together with the kind of uh, employers federation, and the two the main political currents, so the so-called Desturians, the kind of people be described as secularists, and the Islamists, and Nahda, to cobble together um, an arrangement that would allow Nahda to step back from being in power, but remain kind of free, physically unthreatened, and that would basically leave the previously acquired economic privileges of the Disturians uh, in place. That is yet to be resolved. So the reason that Tunisia has continued on this kind of cycle of crisis, I would argue, is because of that gap. It has not either crushed the movements for kind of greater social equality or um, these kind of social rights, but equally it hasn't conceded to them. Um, in Egypt, as I say, there's central kind of presence of the army, but also, as well as this division between Islamists and their enemies, or Muslim Brotherhood and their enemies, actually, I should say, because not all Islamists are in the Muslim Brotherhood, and many of them supported the coup. Um, but centrally, a couple of things. One being the appeal of harking back to the developmental nationalism of the 50s 
60s and 70s, which was a strong uh, binding force for sections of the opposition, even kind of revolutionaries, to support the military in its confrontation with the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, again, coming to political power, sought to restrain, in some cases to repress, the continuing social upheaval. So on the one hand, they were either too revolutionary for the military and their allies, or not revolutionary enough. And so kind of fell between that crack or into that gulf. Um, Plus, in Egypt, you had quite a high level of especially financial support from the Gulf countries. So not direct military support or anything like that, but a lot of diplomatic and uh, financial support to the counter-revolutionary movement and then regime. Right. And uh, uh, the the Gulf states uh, played uh, in Saudi Arabia were massive political actors in, in Egypt's uh, counter-revolution and uh, very significant partners with with uh, General Sisi um, after after the military coup, um, whereas in, in Tunisia, uh, this is one place where uh, I, I think that your analysis is, is uh, um, you know, consistent with a lot of the political science analysis on on um, uh, Tunisia is uh, the weakness of, of the military in the previous regime and uh, um, its relatively marginalized place uh, meant that there was rel- uh, a relative absence of a coup threat. And, and I think that that's been a big, um, big reason why uh, uh, events have transpired so much differently. But as you say, Tunisia is still a very f- fluid situation uh, where it's uh, unclear exactly how much the uh, uh, status quo social counter-revolutionaries are how they're going to um, re-establish hegemony and, and stability uh, of their of their social order um, because uh, some of the key grassroots actors uh, within the, the labor movement there are still uh, still active um, your next chapter focuses on uh, Syria and Bahrain, uh, the two cases where the core personnel of the authoritarian regimes uh, managed to hold on to power. And, and these are also uh, places where um, the core pe- personnel of the authoritarian regimes come from uh, uh, different religious sects than the large majority of their populations and where the political leadership um uh, yeah, has remained remarkably stable. Um, but instead of thinking of sectarianism as sort of one of these million independent variables that cause these regime outcomes, you argue that uh, sectarianism was an emergent phenomenon that both shaped and was reshaped by the strategies of, of counter-revolutionary actors. Um uh, what did what role did uh, sectarianism play in uh, the counter-revolutions in, in Syria and Bahrain? Yeah, so I think um, <clears throat> a word about that different approach is that I'm not saying that sectarianism, sect consciousness, and these kind of things are unimportant or non-existent. I mean, very important. But it's about how you conceive of it. So rather than seeing uh, as many... Uh, Approaches might do sects as actors, you know, something where you can say this is a, a 
a unit, uh, a group that are doing things, rather to see them as verbs almost, or, or things, as you said, that are shaped and reshaped. In both cases, um, I think that was very important for solidifying a counter-revolutionary subject and for disrupting a revolutionary subject. So it unites the counter-revolutionaries and divides revolutionaries. And that's a central kind of role. But they're also quite different. I mean, Bahrain is tiny and Syria is a kind of medium-sized country. So there, there are a lot of things that are different about Syria as a republic, Bahrain as a monarchy, etc. Um, however, they do also have slightly or somewhat different types of sectarianism in that Syria is uh, you know, officially has always been, especially under the Ba'ath, a kind of anti-sectarian or secular republic, um, with the sense that if you spoke about these issues, uh, you would be in trouble, actually, if you grew up, grew up in Syria. That's a story that's told many times. Um, and yet has produced this kind of material division amongst um, different populations identified by religious belief. And that's not because of a kind of doctrinal uh, policy. So it's not that um, Bashar al-Assad or his her father or the people around him have said, we don't like Sunnis. We're going to discriminate against Sunnis. In fact, much of the Syrian security apparatus have been Sunni. And um, certainly a lot of the business groups uh, have been Sunni and formed alliances with uh, Alawi uh, families associated with the regime. However, if you have a core regime that's quite narrow and based around one family and its allies, and a large population, the majority of which is Sunni, then the outcome of that, if that regime is kind of building patronage through various forms, uh, patronage and surveillance of the population, is to bring closer the non-Sunnis to the regime and to alienate the Sunnis. Or not alienate the Sunnis, but alienate a large part of the populace who are likely to be Sunni. Which is why you get this um, refraction, in a way, of the revolution and uprising in Syria and then the war in Syria as a kind of sectarian effect. Um, But it's actually the effect, I would say, of essentially a conflict between a regime based around a core ruling class and a population that it's ruling over. In Bahrain, it's not entirely dissimilar, but the sectarian aspect and the subordination of Shia at least since the the, the 70s, has has been clearer. And the kind of identification of uh, Shia and Bahrain as a a separate kind of community or group to the the rulers, a lot clearer. And partly that's because it is a a monarchy. There there is a, a ruling family, and sometimes Bahrainis say that there are three sects in um in Bahrain, so the Shia, the Sunni, and the Khalifas. 
so that actually the people who are dominating the state are the Khalifas. Now, the Khalifas are Sunni, so that offers them kind of opportunity to bring non-Khalifa Sunnis to their side. Um, but it's always been a much more openly articulated, I guess, uh, antipathy. Yeah, and then um, uh, can you talk a little bit about how the role of, of international actors, um, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states um, affected the uh, the sectarianization, I guess you could say, of, of these conflicts. How did um, their actions contribute to this refraction effect of, of uh, um, the revolutionary situation as one that uh, centered around uh, sectarian social cleavage? Yeah, greatly. Um, not just in, in Syria, but across the region, but probably Syria was the fulcrum of that. In that, um, quite early on, the Syrian regime ad- adopted policies of collective punishment that tended to affect, to affect Sunnis more often, more, more harshly, and that also led to, a, not a collapse, but a great deal of defections and weakening of the Syrian armed forces. And then, in tandem with Iran, of course, Iran being an Islamic, predominantly Shia, Islamic Republic, um, building up something called the National Defence Forces alongside other militias, including Hezbollah, which were largely on a sectarian basis um, of Alawis or Shia, but also even of non, non-Muslim minorities, um, with training and funding from uh, Iran. Competing with that, especially Turkey, kind of uh, funded and encouraged various Islamist-aligned militias, various kinds, uh, eventually these becoming basically Turkey's proxies in the north of Syria. Um, And you have to remember that most... You know, most people fighting in Syria, ordinary Syrians, ordinary Syrian guys usually, do come from a fairly religious, often usually Sunni background. And so it's not surprising that their initial militias were often quite Islamic in tone in that sense. But the competition for uh, funding from sometimes from states in the Gulf. So Saudi Arabia particularly favoured uh, Jaysh al-Islam in, um, in Syria, but also from uh, non-state funders, so private funders, led to competition to kind of Islamize these groups because that's where the, the flow of, of money and, and arms could come from, which... So it has then been kind of generalized. And these militias, in some cases, exported to uh, Libya or moved around, um, say, from, uh, you know, from Syria to other places, Um, as well as lending to a conflict in Yemen, which is even more complicated. And where to describe Shia-Sunni split is in itself really quite problematic. Um, but lending it 
this broader frame that across the region there's this conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and that therefore that must be a, a sectarian conflict. Um, whereas in fact there's a kind of conflict over the variety of counter-revolution that would win. Right, and and um, I think that uh, um, you're... Your main point that um, sectarianism, yeah, religious sects and and the division between different religious sects are obviously an important factor in these societies, but uh, uh, that's not to say that you should view these as unitary actors. Uh, I think that that's something that gets lost a lot in the in the coverage of of um, of conflicts across this region and honestly it's still uh even a lot of political scientists who will um pay lip service to believing in in constructivism and social constructionist theories of of ethnic politics or or uh, religious politics will still um kind of assume that these groups have um uh, a higher degree of groupness uh, than they actually do in practice. And um, uh, uh, coordinating uh, people who belong to the same religious sect into collective political actors takes a lot of work. And there are often different visions about uh, what kinds of, what the group's interests are and what strategies the group should pursue in politics uh, that um, lead to different uh, organizations trying to uh, compete for the, for the mantle of representing the C- the Sunni interest. Um, I think that uh, the way that we talk about um, um, sectarianism and ethnicity and other contexts uh, tends to reify these groups and and um, um, flatten out these uh, um, contentious processes of organization that can often pit people on the, ostensibly on the same side, you know, belonging to the same sect uh, against each other um, to to um, um, establish the hegemonic articulation of the group's interest and and get people to to act behind their political project. Um, and I think that um, to transition to uh, your next couple of cases, uh, you have a similar take on um, tribalism in Libya and Yemen as you do to, uh, and indeed sectarianism in Libya and, and Yemen as well, uh, uh, to um, uh uh, thinking how to, how you think about sectarianism in, in Syria and Bahrain, um, what role have uh, uh, tribalism, maybe put in, in, in quotes, uh, and external intervention uh, played in shaping the um, uh, political trajectories in Libya and Yemen, which have been characterized by the breakdown, the the total collapse of of social and political order, and also what does counter revolution even mean in these contexts? Where, um, unlike in Syria and Bahrain, the core of the state apparatus broke down in the course of of these um, um, uh, revolutionary situations. Yeah, I mean that's a question I struggled with because um, in both both uh, states you had at different times at least three uh, competing um, 
authorities. And very often those were contenders claiming to inherit the revolution of 2011. So it's a very confusing um, situation. Um, and when you see it, the for something like the position of the Houthis and when they invaded uh, or they came into Sana'a, it was after a long period of conferences and attempted national dialogues where the Houthis became the kind of lightning rod of the people who were disoriented by and dis- dissatisfied with the political transition that was cobbled together, which I would identify as the, the counter-revolution actually fostered by Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states that brought um, uh, Hadi, so that the guy who'd been the previous uh, Saleh, the dictator, uh, his deputy, uh, kind of cor- coronation of him, which was the model, I think, that Saudi Arabia and the GCC would like to see for anywhere that was experiencing these uprisings. So that left a gap into which the Houthis kind of came. But then that's further uh, kind of complicated by the fact that then they um, brought on side uh, Saleh, so the old regime. Whereas in Libya, um, first, I mean, first of all, it has to be admitted that the, the NATO action in Libya did take out a lot of Gaddafi's capability to rule. It's true. Um, it, after which the militias who had been fighting against Gaddafi became the different poles of because they were armed. They became the people who could basically um, have some say. And this gave rise to an attempted um, counter-revolutionary movement, a pool of attraction, army, based around uh, General uh, Haftar, supported by outside powers, um, while some other outside powers, such as Turkey, supported the Islamist or the Muslim Brotherhood-aligned government. In both of these, then, there's no central project around which the state kind of coheres. And one easy way to relate to that is to say, well, these are quite decentralised societies in in the sense of um, large kinship groups, tribes, let's call them, retain kind of political legitimacy and a presence in everyday life as well as quite often weaponry. And that's not totally untrue. I mean, people, Libyans and Yemenis often do describe themselves as belonging to tribes and certain um, certain clans or kinship groups have been allied with one militia or another. But what I argument I make in the book, again, is that that's not a tribe that is doing something. That is a kind of mobilization of a certain uh, series of networks, social relations, which often had been fostered by the previous regimes as well, in order to achieve a political objective by uh, some particular group. So I give, I give uh, some examples in the book about how, 
field researchers going and asking Libyans, you know, who is the head of your tribe? And they don't know, which if it was a society where people are constantly at the beck and call of some kind of chieftain, they would know that. Instead, this is, again, a kind of functioning as a mobilizing resource. Right. And and uh, you alluded to how um, um, to the extent that uh, uh, tribal membership has any um, relationship with uh, how individuals actually behave uh, uh, in day to day life and to the extent that to the extent that tribes are effective mobilizing networks um it's because of the meaning and the resources that were attached to them in the time before the revolutionary situation began it's not like um somebody can just emerge and call themselves a chieftain and say i speak for you know my uh my tribe and and expect that that people are going to um follow along with what they're with with what they propose, um, these, uh, uh, organization, uh, organizational resources and, and networks have to be, um, mater- have to be materialized, uh, well before, uh, people can try to put them to use for po- different political projects. And, and it's remarkable how, um, um, you see, uh, political figures in, in, in both countries, but particularly in Yemen, who ostensibly belong to the same tribe, but uh, become bitter rivals over the course of the, of the Civil War. And um, uh, uh, I found Yemen's, uh, your description of Yemen's uh, 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 experience bewildering, not because of what you did, but because of all of the shifting alliances between different tribal and sectarian groups and and patronage networks. Uh, um, uh, I think it's very hard to point to any kind of um, durable uh, uh, social cleavage that is capable of organizing long periods of people in a relatively stable and predictable way in, in, in these places because uh, any kind of social and political order um, was already fragile to begin with before, uh, before the war began, but uh, was basically shattered um, in these situations. Um, uh, your your final chapter focuses on two efforts to construct entirely novel political orders uh, in northern Syria, um, the autonomous administration of Rojava and the caliphate of the Islamic State. Um, first, I want to ask you um, uh, why you classify Rojava as uh, the closest thing that the region experienced to a social revolution, while you classify ISIS as counter-revolutionary. This might um, um, be counterintuitive uh, insofar as uh, ISIS um, was a, a radically novel political entity uh, um, in, in the Middle Eastern political uh, system. Um, and then uh, how did the actions of other counter-revolutionary actors in the region shape the trajectories of these political orders? Mm. So just to go first on the on Rojava, um, which is just, I mean, we shouldn't fetishize this 
term. It just means the sort of western part of Kurdistan. So that's why people call it Rojava. Um, I say that that's the closest thing to a kind of social revolution. And I'm not saying that it got very, very close to that, but because there was an attempt to kind of um, change the existing social relations in a way that kind of moves beyond relationships of kind of capitalism in the market. They didn't get very far with that. I mean, it basically just run uh, with, also didn't last very long before the, it was essentially squashed by Turkey. Um, but also, it has to be, you can't look at this experiment with just all, I think, condemnation or all celebration. It tends to be one or the other. Um, and, you know, they, it was basically run by, has been basically run by one political current, which is the, the, the PYD, so the the version of the Kurdistan Workers' Party in Turkey that exists in northern Syria, which has long had an ambiguous and shifting relationship with the Ba'athist regime, but that did change from a kind of fairly classical national liberation movement conception of the world towards something informed by a kind of more ecological or autonomous um, vision. And a lot of ill ink has been spilt on really how truthful or, or sincere that is, as if that's a meaningful question. Uh, I don't really think that it is. But I think what you, you can say is that there was definitely an attempt to create that kind of project. But it was also one that was embedded in the um it embedded in the Syrian context. And for example, you know, the Syrian regime was still paying civil servants in in Rojava. Actually still paying civil servants in quite a lot of the areas that they uh left. It wasn't unique to Rojava. But the PYD um for some good reasons and for some probably not so good reasons was pretty hostile to the rest or the the Syrian opposition. And so, although might proclaim this kind of model of democratic confederalism as the solution for Syria, for the region, for something more progressive, it's never going to get very far if um, without kind of some sort of uh, alliance with the broader uprising that begun in 2011, to which the PYD took a best a kind of ambiguous attitude, and which the regime sensing that made a very a kind of uh, astute move by withdrawing from areas that would then be ruled by the PYD, um, and on occasion both of them kind of fighting the same groups of the Syrian opposition at the same time, uh, or calling in Russian air cover at the same or sorry air cover at the same time. So, Because the second point I was going to make was really this uh, experiment was dependent upon um, US uh, air power because the US sensed that the the uh, YPG or it's the sort of military arm of the PYD and its allies would be the most effective fighters against ISIS. And therefore, you know, basically they could call upon the 
the US Air Force. Until, of course, the US dropped dropped them and um, Turkey came in and kind of swept most of them aside. So that's the story, I guess, of Rojava. In the case of ISIS, it's quite understandable and not, I think, in, you know, invalid to look at this phenomenon and say, well, isn't that really a, a, you know, that's a genuinely kind of revolutionary thing. You might not like it, but this is a group that has just taken over an area, established a new political social order, which um, is based upon uh, radically different uh, ideas about the world, which is also universalist. It's saying we don't stop at Syria, we want to go over the whole world, and that therefore um, attracts the enmity of almost all the other powers in the um, region. That's a strong argument. But the reason that I say, or I see counter-revolution in ISIS is, first of all, the primary and most frequent targets of the repression and combat of ISIS were the people who had um, made the uprising of 2011. So counter-revolutionary in the sense of actually literally repressing and killing the revolutionaries. And they were able to do that because they were doing that. They were given a certain degree of space for a while by the regime and by Russia um, in order for them to become the enemy, which, of course, makes for a better international narrative if uh, the regime is seen to be fighting not a kind of popular uprising, but um, a very... uh, very unpleasant um, kind of experiment. Um, So uh, after uh, uh, finishing up this uh, long-term work on, on counter-revolution in the Arab world, uh, what's, do you have any idea what your next project is? Uh, What are you working on now? At the moment, I'm mostly working on teaching, to be honest. <laughs> um, but uh, there are a couple of things. One of, one of them I've been trying to do, which is more of an extension of this one, or is an offshoot of work on Syria, which is um, about the meaning of the of a, a war economy. What it, what it means to talk about such a thing as a, a war economy existing. And how maybe there is a lot more war in the economy, as we call it, already than we think of, um, rather than this being this really special thing about a place like a place like Syria. So that's one thing. And the other thing which I've been trying to get off of the ground is a is a kind of a shift, but it, it relates to some of these questions, which would be about the development of um, different kinds of fuel, so energy transition from the early modern period and the emergence of the kind of abstract sovereign state. Because it's often seen that in the Middle East, we start from a proposition that um, 
energy, or these physical resources, their extraction really matter. They really matter for the way that the states work, particularly in the idea of the rentier state. But the implication of this then is that other states are kind of neutral with regard to that history. And uh, I would like to reverse that and see if that's really uh, been true. Uh, maybe you'll call it fossil sovereignty. Uh, I already have. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I already have. Just so we know. I have that written down, Jeffrey, so I, I'm not stealing your IP. Okay, noted. Uh, all right, Jamie, it was a, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, once again, the book is The Age of Counter-Revolution. It's uh, out from Cambridge University Press. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, have a nice day. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs>